welcome to the High Performance Podcast. Go on. I can't say anything else. I'm too busy. Goodbye. That's Florence, uh, my daughter, attempting to introduce this week's High Performance Podcast. Do you know what? I think we should get straight into it this week because we've got a brilliant episode with a man who has spent his life at the heart of government. Flo, what you need to just do is say, here's what to expect on today's episode. Go on. Here's what to expect on today's episode. Very good. Hope you're all having a great half term as well. I get called liar every day on social media about Iraq, 45 minutes to dodge a dossier that every single day. And I know I didn't lie, uh, but that's never going to make any difference to, to the people who say that. So I think strategy is the most important. Right. And in a well-functioning organisation, you won't have got to the top unless you're good at that. But sadly, I think a lot of organisations, people do get to the top who aren't good at that. And I think building the team is, you know, is fundamental. 1997, the first election, which should have been one of the happiest days of my life, I was, I was honestly, I was miserable. And I think it was partly, you've worked on this for years and years and years and years, and, and now it's gone. Everybody defined it as euphoria. I didn't feel that at all on any level. It's a really interesting conversation, this one. Um, I hope you take a lot from it. I hope you grab a pen and paper and you make some notes. Thank you so much to Alistair for agreeing to be on today's episode. Um, yeah, so you've heard from Florence. You've had a little taste of what to expect from Alistair. In about one minute's time, today's high-performance podcast episode will begin. And I hope you love it. Before we get going with today's episode of the podcast, I just want to say a really big thank you to Lotus Cars. You probably know by now that I wear quite a few different hats, uh, and one of those is that I'm the chairman of a brilliant charity in Norfolk called the Community Sport Foundation. Lotus gave us a final edition Lotus Elise, the very first one off the production line, and then we sold tickets and we raffled the car off. Tickets were £9 each, and Lotus helped us raise for the charity over one hundred thousand pounds um it's an amazing charity that tries to change people's lives through the power of sport and we will change so many lives because of the generosity of lotus so everyone at lotus cars you helped us raise over a hundred thousand pounds thank you thank you thank you so so much for your kindness and your generosity and if you want to find out more about lotus then just check out lotuscars.com or follow them at lotus cars they are the founding partners of the High Performance Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. Professor Damien Hughes is with me as ever. And look, Damien, this is really going to be a conversation, I think, where we talk a lot about communication. We do it every day. It's fundamental to our lives, yet a remarkable number of people struggle with something that seems so basic, communication. Absolutely. I think it's the foremost uh, excuse that people give for marriage breakdowns, you know, political disputes, uh, workplace troubles are often lack of communication skills that seems so obvious. So no, I'm really looking forward to it in its relation to high performance, Jake. Absolutely. Come on then, let's get into this. What did today's guest learn from being responsible for communication in the very heart of the British government? Why is he so obsessed with winning? He studied it for years. What even is winning? How can obsession be both a blessing and a curse? We're delighted to be sitting here. Now, if you ask me to name my top five books, a book that this man wrote, would be right up there at the very top. So it's a real pleasure to finally get the chance to have a proper conversation in person with the man who wrote Winners and has met plenty of them and hopefully he can share um, some of his insights with us now. Alistair Campbell, welcome to the High Performance Podcast. Thank you. And if it wasn't that the paperback was already out, we'd have used that as a quote on the paperback. Oh! <laughs> well, listen, if people haven't read it, let me give it one more plug. They absolutely should. Absolutely. It's a brilliant book. It's, it centres around high performance, obviously. So... From all the things you've learned, all the people you've spoken to, the experiences that you've had, what is high performance? I think it's setting really big, bold objectives and then working out what you need to get there and doing it. Now, obviously, that has to be realistic. I couldn't run a four-minute mile, so I wouldn't ever set myself that objective. But I might, in fact, I did, I might set myself the goal of running a four-hour marathon because that would be you know, ambitious but realistic for when I did it. So I think it's, it's that combination of what are the goals, how far can you push them, and then do you have the wherewithal to, to meet them? Well, let's talk about meeting them, because I think most people listening to this can think of an objective they'd love to achieve, but getting there is often the stumbling block for people. And you talk about, in winners, you talk about the three most important letters in the alphabet, O, S, and T. Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining those to people and why they are so fundamental to not just setting the goal, but achieving it as well? Because, well, O is objective, S is strategy, and T is tactics. And I think particularly in the modern world, because the pressures are all to be tactical, 24-7 media, social media, instant gratification, all that stuff, I think people tend to go very tactical when actually the response to that change world should be to be more strategic. So O, set the objective. S, work out the strategy, and only really go tactical when you've got those two in working in harness. It's interesting, you know, we're, we're meeting at a time where Mourinho is back in the news again. I focused him, on him as my, my sort of in-depth study of strategy because mm. he has a completely different model of strategy. But he said that to him, strategy and tactics are interchangeable. Yeah. And that's kind of anathema to me. I, just, I think that the reason I think we're in such a mess as a country is because... David Cameron never had a strategy for Europe, for Britain and Europe, so he decided to have a tactic of a refer- calling a referendum to try and keep his party and his government together. Won the election, had to have the referendum, tactic imploded, mm. he's now gone. We're Johnson's in charge and I think we're in a bit of a mess. So that to me is a classic confusion of strategy and tactics. But Mourinho's view was that as a coach... He builds a tactical model for every football game that he plays 
and strategy to him is what he does when his model is not working. Now that's a very different way of thinking about it. It's more a kind of that's more a kind of war, you know, yep. war approach. Mm. What you what you'd expect on the battlefield, and that's obviously where his mindset is. But I see it for, you know, business, for academia, whatever it might be. What are you trying to achieve, and then work out the strategy. For me, is like I call it the big how. It's the big how. It's not the little bits. It's the so like for us in 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 politics, new labour, modernisation. That was the strategy. It wasn't just a slogan. It was the strategy. Everything had to be about modernisation, and the tactics all flow from that. So, if Jose Mourinho is someone you've looked at and thought, "Wow, that's kind of totally different to my thinking." Who have you met over the years where they've spoken about how they marry strategy and tactic and you think they've got it absolutely bang on? <laughs> the one that pops into the mind straight away as you said that, I'm afraid it was Lance Armstrong. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I interviewed him a few times. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I was such a fan that I was blind to what I should have been the signals I should have been reading. Was there signals then? Because I've often looked well, at journalists and thought, how, how are they not uh, spotted? What's oh, yeah. The, well, there are only signals when I see them in retrospect. So I'll give you the best example. So, like, you see something like him. And, you know, David Miller, another cyclist who I spoke to, and he said, the problem with you and me, he said, is we're kind of like, we're natural alpha males. We see somebody like Lance Armstrong. We want to like that guy. Because he kind of reminds us of what we want to be, Right. So I see Lance Armstrong, and I asked all the right questions, I hope, you know, but I believed him. Yeah. So when he said, I'm the most dope-tested athlete in the history of any sport, you know, I can't go for a pee without a drug, a drug tester following me, you know. If there was anything to find, they'd have found it. And I thought, yeah, go can buy that. Anyway, so then we got into mindset, and I said, um, see, when you had cancer, were you scared of dying? He said, oh, yeah, I was scared of dying, I was scared of dying. And you see right now, you're about to go into the tour, I think it was his fifth tour, you're about to go into the tour, and you're up against Jan Ulrich, who's like a beast, right? You're scared of losing to him. He said, I'm scared. I'll, I'll, I'm scared of Ulrich, yeah. I said, which of those two fears is greater? And he said, <laughs> he said, Elster, losing and dying, it's the same thing, right? Wow. Now, I went, wow. I should have gone, ah, oh, right, so you're a total yeah. fucking cheater. It you? matters that much <laughs> yeah, to you. You would yeah. do anything. Yeah. But I didn't. I thought, oh, wow. So his, his, his strategy and tactics, I mean, you have to analyse it from what he achieved. Yeah. But obviously there was a flaw in there that's subsequently been exposed. So I, I, if I think of other people, I think Bill Clinton, strategy and tactics. Um, I Why? Think because I think he, in a moment of crisis for him the whole Monica Lewinsky thing he never lost sight of that OST right and he defined it in those terms he, I did an interview with him where he said it wasn't specifically for the book I'd done it for a TV thing and I said how did you cope when you know and I could we could see because when he and Hillary were coming over here or we were going over there right. and it was just obvious he was in the mm. deep freeze with Hillary right absolutely if the cameras were there she could paint on a smile she could be the first lady. As soon as the cameras were gone, it was like deep mm. freeze. And he said, at the time, I'm the president of the United States. I'm supposed to be the most powerful man in the world. I was sleeping on the sofa, right? And I, I was, he was right out of favor. So I said, well, how do you cope with that? And he said, objective, survive, stay president, 
strategy, focus on the things that only I can do because only I'm the president. Tactics, make sure the American people know that's what I'm doing. And if you go back and look at what he was saying and doing during that time, he never talked about Monica Lewinsky unless he was asked about it. He'd get up every morning, he'd go out, he'd talk about jobs, he'd talk about, you know, diplomacy, talk about military stuff. He'd never, he'd only engage in it if he had to. So where did you learn about those three pillars then, Alistair, in your own story, about the objective, the strategy, and the tactics, and its importance? Well, possibly from, possibly from him, I can't remember. Right. When, when but I used to have, I mean, I, I, less so now, but I, I, I'm still a very pen and paper person. And inside my notebooks, I've got a notebook, the first thing I write in it is OST. Now, I've done that for a long time. Yeah. And I've got, I'm, a, I'm big on post-its on the wall and stuff like that. And OST has always been a big one. When I first started doing that, I just don't know. But right. it's interesting that it was Clinton who, he defined that in those terms. It might have been that. But I think also instinctively, it's sort of what we did as New Labour. Because I've read a story, I don't know if this is true, that quite early on, once you won the election in 97, that there was a story of Tony Blair asking, how do you make things happen now? It was almost like you'd got into power and then pulling the levers of power to make it translate well, into hard. tactics. It's hard because, you, 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 and, uh, you know, Mario Cuomo, governor of New York, he said, you know, you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. So you're out on the campaign trail. And the thing about, I think, definitely me, and to a lesser extent, Tony, because Tony obviously is having to think about, you know, you, we're not daft. We knew it was like we were going to win. But every day we had a discussion. What can we do today to stop ourselves winning? Every single day we had that. Wow. So by the time we got there, it was almost like, and I can remember, I mean, I said in my diaries, I, I was like, I was a bit depressed because I was really tired and I was slightly daunted by the prospect of what we we're going into. And then, so we get into it. Tony's got a much more kind of positive outlook about everything than I have. And he's, he's, I don't think he's ever had a day's depression in his life. But he goes in there and it's like, right, we know what we want to do. How do we do it? And going from campaign mode, which is a sort of, I mean, Clinton said it's the only form of life that makes everybody look like their passport photo. You're full on, it's exhausting. And then you win and you get in and suddenly it's more important and harder. So yeah, he did, he did say that. And, but what it, was a, what it was, was a way of getting, galvanizing the, the machine right. into working for him and working for us and what we wanted to do. But so, the reason I ask is that where, where do you think a leader needs to focus? Is it on all three of the OST? I've got two most important letters, yeah. sets of. The other is SLT. And SLT is strategy, leadership and teamship which for me have to work together in a, in a kind of never-ending circle. I don't think you can have one working without the other two. I mentioned Cameron. I can look at Cameron and think, well, yeah, he looks a bit like a leader. I don't, it doesn't sound ridiculous when he's described as the Prime Minister. He had quite a good team. People like Osborne around him and that lot. And, but on strategy, I think he was weak. Mm. So unless you have those three all going together, I don't think it works. I think, you know, your world, you look at sport, you can see managers. I can spot man. I love watching managers after match interviews and stuff because you can spot the ones who are good at that, right? But it's a very different skill to what you need to motivate a team of players yeah. who don't give a damn what you're saying on the telly because they're probably not even watching it. Yeah. 
you know, and, and so how you do those three things together. So I think strategy is the most important. Right. And in a well-functioning organization, you won't have got to the top unless you're good at that. But sadly, I think a lot of organizations, people do get to the top who aren't good at that. And I think building the team is, you know, is fundamental. And you were a key part, if we talk about that team that won three consecutive elections, you were obviously a key part of that. What would you say that you brought in that teamship element that was unique that nobody else was doing? Tony's nickname for me was Kino. <laughs> so I think, I think box to box and absolute focus and yeah. not letting anything go. Hard in the tackle? Quite hard. Yeah, when Quite needed hard. to be. Hopefully with a, a bit more of the humour that Keane shows these days. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about big things here. We're talking about elite level sport, running countries, doping your way to more Tour de France wins than anybody else, being the president of the United States and sleeping on the sofa. Can these letters apply to anyone in any walk of life? Should all the people listening to this podcast, no matter what their job or their career or their plan, should we all be thinking in the mindset of OST? Yeah, I think so, because if you think about, if you have a kid, you have a child, objective. Keep it alive. (laughs) Yeah, but raise the child to be healthy and happy. Yeah. Right? Strategy. Uh, What sort of parent are you going to be? Now, it's bloody hard, and I'm not saying that you can stick to a certain style, but I think having those discussions in your own mind and with your, your family, I think is a good thing to do. Take something really simple. I described this in the book. You know, you want to lose weight. Objective. Well, you want to lose weight. Strategy. Diet. Exercise. What's a tactic? Write down everything you eat. Put a picture of yourself when you're overweight mm. on the fridge. You know, these are just tactics. Yeah. So I think, I think you can do it with anything. And I, and I think it is a, a useful... And I think even the strategy, leadership, teamship thing you can have. If you're like you know, in your own life going through struggles, well, who are the people that you really trust to talk to? They're your team. Your strategy might be to be open with them about a problem that you're facing. So I, I think that I think these are, yeah, read, readily applied to everyday life. And how well do you think they can overlap? So like the example you offered of being a parent is one, and then having a professional career as another how well do you think they can overlap or how, how do you manage conflict then? They can overlap well and they can all also overlap very, very badly. So, you know, if I think about my own kind of life, I think we kid ourselves that you can do really full-on, intense, high-profile, pressured, travelling around the world, working around the clock jobs and not lose something from your role as a parent. And... Now, it's very hard to admit that to yourself when you're doing it, but retrospectively, you know, I look back and I think, yeah, well, you know, we were talking to you earlier about my, one, of my, one of our sons who's, you know, recovering alcoholic. Now, he might have been anyway. He might have been anyway, but there's a little part of me that will always think we weren't there enough for him yep. uh, when he was growing up. And now, that may be right or wrong, but I think we, I think in the modern age i think we try and kid ourselves we can have everything so i think they can overlap look i always try to involve the family even to the extent of fiona my partner who didn't want me to do the job in the first place she eventually came and worked with cherie tony's wife and 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 that 
kind of was a way of trying to involve her more, involve the family more. But, you know, if I'm being absolutely honest, I, I don't think it really worked. And we've been a lot happier since, since we stopped. After, a, you know, quite a long period after I left of, you know, finding, finding it a real struggle. Because the other thing I find, and this, I think, is another thing that you'll probably, I'm sure you'll have come across loads of times with the people you've talked about, this high-performance team. I sort of do feel if you're doing something really, really difficult, you do have to be on it 24-7. Yeah. You do have to think about it when you're asleep. You do have to be, you know, waking up with new ideas. And, and I think it's hard to do that and be a normal person. Well, I mean, one of our previous interviewees, Alistair, was uh, Stephen Hendrick who was the first one that would have, that was really explicit about the importance of selfishness mm. to be high performers. He admitted that, he, that his snooker career came above his wife and children mm. in his priority list. How important do you think it is to be explicit about the dark side of high performance then? I mean, I remember <laughs> Peter Vandalus of what said of Tony Blair, he said, oh, I do love Tony. He's so selfish. <laughs> it, it is a high-performance trait, though, sadly, isn't it? It was, it was like, you know, it was just like, I can't remember what the circumstances were, but it was like, you definitely have to have that ability. I mean, I, you know, I think sacking people is quite hard. And, I, you know, I saw as time went on that Tony, you know, without losing his humanity, he definitely found it easier as time went on. He found it easier to... You know, something that he would agonise over suddenly. It wasn't that he became perfunctory, but he found it easier. Now, you've got to be a bit selfish for that. You've got to say, right, well, mm. this person is no longer useful in the way that they were and the way I wanted them to be. I'm moving them out. And I've got somebody over there that I'm bringing in. And, of course, sport, you know, I mean, that's sport's kind of made on, it's built on that. Well, didn't Alex Ferguson give you some advice on it when you reached out to him once about conflict in the cabinet and... That was the advice he'd passed on. No, his, to he, he gave me a lot of advice at different points, but the one thing that Fiona, my partner, will never forgive him for, if, the one that I really remember was in 97 on the campaign trail, and he was obsessed about the election. He was, because he doesn't like the Tories, and he was desperate for us to win. He was phoning up the whole time. And I'll never forget it. We were arriving at this, in, it was in Leicester, on this bloody, I hated this campaign bus, right? I just hated being on this bus. High performance, by the way, Dave Brailsford once yep. phoned me up, said, what's the best coach you've ever been on? <laughs> there you go. We'll talk about him in a second. Right, so the phone goes, and it was Alex Ferguson, and he said, we chatted away, and he said, listen, I, I saw you uh, earlier in the day, you were getting off the bus behind Tony at somewhere where we've been. He said, you're looking really, really stressed. I said, well, I'm feeling stressed. He said, what's going on then? I said, well, I said, you know what I think it is? The closer we get to the election, we're so far ahead in the polls now, people are already starting to treat Tony like he's the Prime Minister. So people who would normally think it's okay to go to him were not doing that. They were coming to me or to one of the other people who was around him. So in addition to doing all the stuff that I had to do, which was a lot, and a lot of stuff that I was kind of in charge of, I was picking up more stuff and I was getting really, really stressed. And he said, well, do you know what I do in those circumstances? He said, I kind of imagine I'm a racehorse. I'm not into racing at all. And I've got blinkers on. And all I'm, I'm looking out there and all I can see is a tunnel. I can just see a tunnel. 
and people are coming at me and they'll come and they'll do that thing, which is what people are doing to you now, where they'll say, only you can resolve this, only you can deal with this. And he said, I give them, I give them five seconds and I make a decision like that, whether that's right or wrong. And it might be true. And I've, I've pretty much done that ever since. Well, so when you're in that tunnel, you very quickly tell people whether they should go to someone else, you mean? Yeah. So yeah. remove that one from you rather Total, than taking on everything. Rather than yeah. taking on everything, yeah. And, and, and it being a kind of almost instinctive thing and accepting that sometimes you might be wrong. Um, but yeah, he, he was great like that. And, he, he, and the other one he said, which we didn't take on, he said, you've got to get a masseur on that bus. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds quite good. Well, yeah, but I'm not sure. Given that we had another bus just behind us full of, you know, press and things. Journos, yeah. yeah. Talking of masseurs on buses and Dave Brailsford, I'm really interested to get into the conversation about what Dave taught you. One of the things you said right at the beginning, your secret to high performance is is to think big. And if anyone shoots for the stars in terms of their thinking, it's Dave Brailsford. So does he do the OST? Does he create the objective, huge objective, and work out the strategy and the tactics all at the same time? Or do some of these really highly successful people do the O and then kind of spend a lot of time and speak to a lot of people about how the strategy yeah, and the tactics I think, come Yeah, I think together? he's a bit of both, actually. I think he said in the book that he said, when he first said, I'm going to lead the team that becomes the first British team to win the Tour de France, ever, he said he got home that night and he said to his missus, I can't believe what I said today. And so it wasn't like he'd, yeah. I mean, he'd planned it yeah. and he knew he was going and he to believed do it, it and he believed he could do it. But when he said it, I don't think he had anything like the full plan. But I think his strategy was, it was to put together you know, I mean, I know people focus on this thing about marginal gains, but it was actually to say, well, what are all the things that I'm now going to need to do what I've said we're going to do? Yep. And how do I make them just a little bit better than everybody else? And that's what he did. And how many of these really elite high performance people are working in silos, are able to compute and work it without themselves? And how much, like Dave Brailsford, are able to put a brilliant team around them? I don't know anybody who can do it all themselves. Right. I think I do think putting together the right group of people is as important as I mean. Obviously, if, if you're particularly in sport, if you're the athlete, yep. you're the most important person. If you're the coach, but I think you know you look at the great coaches. If they were to put into one room all the different people that are really important to their success, if they're being honest, a lot of them will be people you and I have never heard of. Mm. I mean, I always remember it used to be became a sort of huge laugh in our household, the fact how often Alex Ferguson, when United scored, would, would, would hug the kit man, Albert. Because as far as he was concerned, Albert was absolutely fundamental to the, to the culture, to the ethos, to the success. Yeah. And I think the other thing about, about Dave that's, um, that's really interesting is his absolute restlessness. Mm. Uh, never really happy. And one of the questions I asked virtually everybody I interviewed for the winner's book was whether they were more motivated by a love of winning or a hatred of defeat, and most of them it was a hatred of defeat. And what would you say for yourself? Oh, totally. Yeah. Same? Yeah, definitely. Well, if I tell you, that, for example, 1997, the first election, which should have been one of the happiest days of my life, I was, I was honestly, I was miserable. And I think it was partly, you've worked on this for years and years and years and years, and, and now it's gone. And what are you going to do next? And I knew what I was going to do next, but I wasn't... Everybody defined it as euphoria. I didn't feel that at all on any level. And do you think that's what made you successful at your job then? So 
I've wondered this in terms of you've spoken quite publicly about your mental health challenges mm. over the years. Do you think that in many ways that was a blessing and a curse because it made you good at your job in terms of never being happy, maybe looking for the worst in situations? Mm. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I am happy most of the time and I really like having a good laugh. And you were asking what my role was. I think one of my roles was the sort of, I was definitely the, the black humour guy who was trying to keep people laughing and what have you. But yeah, I, I, I think that sense of looking for the stuff that can go wrong mm. and worrying all the time and never ever accepting that perfection exists and, and yet trying to strive for it, that's definitely, you know, we won with the sort of mass that landslide that we got in 1997, but part of me was thinking, you know, we could have done better than that. You know, we could have done better. Do you worry all the time? Yeah, I worry about something most of the time, yeah. 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 I'm the same, and I've always been like that. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I almost think it's kind of like, um, it's a bit of a protective orb that I'm... I mean, my wife takes it to the extreme. I remember her once saying to me, I'm worried I haven't worried enough. <laughs> like that was going to change or solve the problem. But I do think there is something healthy about worrying, not to an unhealthy degree, but having that... Just having an edge of that all the time. Yeah, just so well, you're I kind think... of plugged into the potential issues without them overawing you. I mean, I think anxiety as a kind of medical condition is horrible. And I've, I've had a bit of that, um, not as much as I've had the depression, but I, I know what anxiety is. But worry, as in ruminating and fretting and thinking through a problem, I, th I think that's part of performance. Mm. Why do athletes get more nervous before an Olympic final than they do before a, you know, a bog-standard diamond race in wherever? Yeah. Because it matters more. And I think the worrying and the sleeplessness and all that stuff, I mean, obviously not sleeping is really bad for you. But I, if I think of really, really some really, really high pressure moments I've had, like I remember the, the night before the, I had to give evidence of the Hutton inquiry, which was massive pressure for me. I realised coming back 4.30, there was no way I was going to get back to sleep. So I was kind of, I was thinking, right, that means I've got a few more hours that I can try to get get my mind properly in shape, get my attitude properly in shape. So I think even using something like sleeplessness as a, as a kind of positive worry, yeah. yep. I think when it gets really bad is when it, when it does trip over to, you know, anxiety that, that, as an illness. But I can worry, honestly. I, my, my worries can go from worrying about uh, how warm will it be in the studio, should I wear, you know, something yeah. warm, to... How many shirts should I take on a trip to somewhere next week? Yeah. To why aren't I doing more to stop the world from destroying itself through climate change? The, the, the intensity is just the same when you're in that kind of ruminating yeah. mode. But I find it very, not therapeutic, but cleansing. But what I'd be fascinated to understand, Alistair, is that you're somebody who has taken steps to understand the workings of your mind. You've spoken about sort of linking up with psychiatrists and coaches in that way. For anyone listening to this podcast, what's the most valuable tip you've learned from your work with professionals in that area that have helped you keep it on a manageable level as opposed to going too far? I mean, there's lots really, but I don't know whether they'd apply necessarily to my previous self because I do, part of what I've done is to lead a very different sort of life. Right. I'm still very busy and I do loads of stuff, but I've very carefully and deliberately prevented myself getting sucked into doing just one thing 
I think doing the job I did for Tony Blair is probably the last just one thing that I'll do. And now I do lots of different things. But I think that even that's helpful for people to hear because there will be people listening to this that have anxiety and mental health problems and don't necessarily know which way to turn and looking for your own answers is Yeah, but you so see, what, when I was a journalist and then when I worked in, with Tony Blair, I always thought I was a full-on, you've got to have a job, you've got to have a, you know, you just got to do one mm. thing. And now I've developed into something very different. I'm not saying, I don't know which is right or which is wrong. And it may be for other reasons to, to do with being older, to do with my kids being grown up, whatever. I'm definitely mentally in a better place now. However, I still get depression and I still get, you know, I still have a quite a troubled mind. And the thing about, I mean, there's lots of little tips and big tips I can kind of pass on. I'll give you, I'll give you a tiny one. The thing about pressure leading to, and, and, and um, I, was it Dave Brailsford or there's, there's another guy in the book, Andy McCann, who's a sports Wales, psychologist yeah. in Wales. Yeah, he said, pressure good, stress bad. Pressure good. Pressure, this, this matters, that makes you do it better. Stress, you're worrying about things you shouldn't, your mind's going to a place you can't control, you lose the plot. And I, I once had a situation where I was doing interviews and I was, I was having like out-of-body experiences, one of which, you can Google it, Google me and Andrew Marr, right. and it will come up top, I guarantee it. And it was an interview where he asked me a question and I'm just, I'm not there, I'm kind of, I'm over there. At one point, I'm thinking I'm going to hit him. And I didn't speak for quite... You, 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 listen, you do telly, right? Yeah. It's only a few seconds, but honestly... It feels like a long quite time. Quite a long yeah. few seconds. And I didn't say anything because I didn't know what was... I didn't know where I was. So I went to see this guy, Andy McCann, because I knew him through a friend of ours who was a golfer who was helping him because he had the yips and he couldn't putt properly. And... Andy told me this thing. He said, well, all that's happening there is, I can't remember the medical term. He gave me the medical term. And it's a sort of fight or flight thing. And he said, the thing you've got to do is find your own thing that works for you. I said, well, like what? He said, well, you know, the All Blacks. Have you seen the All Blacks playing? And you see them do that. And look at the sky. It's a centering. Yeah. That's their centering thing. They're losing concentration. Just go, go like that. And it just gets them back. So I developed this thing. So my thing is that. I just rub my thumbs. So if I feel, and this, this is like, if I get, it doesn't happen as often as it, you know, I don't want to make this sound dramatic. Yeah. If, I, if somebody attacks me in the street, which occasionally does happen, right? You know, yeah. just shouts at you or has a go, whatever. I just do that. And I don't know why, but two things happen. One, I feel centered. And secondly, I smile. It makes me smile. <laughs> and I do it on the telly. If I'm, if I'm feeling under pressure at a, in an interview or something, I'll just do that. And the thing is that I do have a bit of a temper. And sometimes, particularly out on the speaking circuit, you get people, if it's an after-dinner thing, they've had a few drinks. And yeah. so there's always one who wants to have a little go and make a name for themselves. And, and it's funny, I do that and I just start laughing at them. And there's nothing they can do to get near me. So that's the kind of... Yeah, brilliant. That's a sort of micro thing. And then the, a bigger thing, which I got actually writing the book and making the film about depression, was, was my jam jar, which is this woman who told me that, look at your life as a jam jar. So down the bottom of the jam jar is the sediment, that's your yeah. genes. And then the rest of your jam jar is your life. And it's most of the time you can manage it. It's good and bad and it's mixed stuff you remember, stuff you don't. But when the jam jar gets full, it means you can't cope the lid explodes 
and your life explodes and you're ill, okay? And she said, what you need to do is rather than think about undoing everything inside the jam jar, is grow the jam jar, right? Add the layers that allow you more space to put more of your life. So I didn't honestly didn't know what she was talking about, but then I ruminated. A few days later, I got up in the middle of the night, I woke in the middle of the night about four o'clock, I went downstairs, and it's on my wall at home now, I drew my own jam jar. Sediment, life, and then I've got, and this is personal to me, right? This is the first one's FFF, Fiona, family, friends, right? If my key relationships are strong, if my kids are reasonably happy, if Fiona and I are getting on, if I've got a small number of close friends that I totally trust, that's not a bad start. Meaningful activity, which means work, but it also means changing the world. Yep. Then sleep, diet, exercise, which I never used to take seriously, and now I do. Then it's the things that are really personal to me, so Burnley Football Club, bagpipes, scenery, Elvis, Jack Brell, ABBA, <laughs> my bike, my dog. Yeah. Right, these are the things that matter to me. Then it's the thematic stuff, like curiosity. Never go to bed without knowing something you didn't know when you went, got up in the morning. Yeah. Creativity, for me, is important. I have to write something every single day. And the thing is, I'm up here already with my jam jar, and I haven't even mentioned medication, which I take every day. Mm. Now, the thing is, if you'd have said to me the day before I met this woman in Canada, Janine, who told me about this, and you'd have said to me, how do you cope with depression? I'd have said, oh, I'll take medication every day. So I still take medication, yeah. but if you now say to me, how do you deal with depression? And I say, oh, I've got my jam jar. Yeah. And do you ever find that certain parts of your jam jar have not, have not been allowed to grow enough and you're sort of aware of them? Oh, yeah, and you can, yeah, definitely. What, what I do now is if I, if I feel I'm going into depression or when I'm in it, I will very deliberately try and do something to tick off every single one. Yeah. Generally, if I do it, in, up to and including phoning Sean Deitch and saying, you know, why did you take Goodmanson off yesterday? That's me doing Burnley. And he'll, he'll tolerate it and patronise me and <laughs> pretend he takes my views seriously. But I'll do something to do with all of them. And yeah, definitely, it's made me feel... It's just given me a plan yeah. when I get into depression. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm conscious that your original training in journalism mm. was about framing a narrative. Mm. And I'm interested there that that seems like a very different way of an internal narrative of rather than seeing yourself as somebody that takes medication, that jam jar is a different story you're telling I yourself. I think that's exactly what it is, and I, th I think we all need those. 
look, we all have them. Mm. You know, we all have them. We all tell ourselves stories about ourselves all the time. Yeah. And sometimes we challenge them. You know, so, yeah, I think that is exactly what it is. The other thing is, if, you, if, if you've ever been in the public eye and people write about you and broadcast about you, narratives get shaped for you, you know. You get, so, you know, I, I find with me, I find one of the most irritating things that happens to me is a number of people say, oh, you're not at all like I expected. It really pisses me off because what it means is they've never stopped to think. And I'm not saying they should. Yeah. Right, but they, they take other people's narratives. Now, I, th- I think you've got to... It's not that you should sit around there, but this goes back to your point about whether you can, you can all relate to your own sense of strategy, leadership, teamship. I think owning your own narrative is really, really important because that then dictates the decisions that you make about your own life. One of the decisions I wrestle with all the time, literally every day, this is one of the things I worry about. So like Fiona, my partner, she's much more private than I am anyway, but she sort of decided she doesn't feel any need to be validated by outside people. But that's a big decision to make when it comes to things like, you know, like this, this morning with the Super League, I've got loads of bids to go and talk about it. Why? Because people are like football and, you know, I might have an opinion, right? And I was torn. Fiona's got no need to be torn because she's decided I don't need that outside validation. Her MA, her meaningful activity, is around stuff that matters to her to do with the family, to do with helping out in local schools, being a governor, to do with, you know, it's a different sort of validation. So, and I think that's how the the narrative you give yourself isn't just about, it's not just a static thing. It actually helps Mm. you make decisions about about your own life. You've been close to real power like some of the characters you've described, the Clintons, the Blairs, the, the Putins even. Is there a common thread to their narratives that you think separate them from, uh, from others? Yes and no. Yes and no. If, no. I think to get to that level, you do have to have a sense of your own abilities and, and I think you do have to be a little bit arrogant. I don't mean that in a bad way. You need to think, yeah. I mean, you've got to be a bit weird to think you can be a prime minister or a president, you know, because not many people are going to do it. Mm. But then I think you've got to have... So, like, part of Tony's narrative was that sense of positivity and confidence, and and that played into the political narrative of, you know, modernisation, New Labour, New Britain, all that. Clinton had very, you know, a very similar kind of vibe, if you like. But then, you, you know, you mentioned something like Putin. I'd say Putin is somebody whose narrative has changed. I think it has got to a pretty dark place where it's really just about power and wealth and, and so forth. With somebody like Merkel, who, you know, she's, she's incredible because she's like... I, I wonder if she'd even get elected in, in a country like Britain or even France, you know, because she doesn't have that, what we would define as modern-day charisma. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to remember these, about these these really powerful positions you're making people focus on the decisions that you see every night on the telly which might be one or two you're making hundreds yeah and i think to have to be able to make them at the speed that they have to make them you know i used to watch tony blair with these you know the red boxes when it might be you're at a summit we're coming back from the summit you're on a plane is where's my box they bring the red box down and it'll just be you know it's it's literally split second decisions about parliamentary answers, yes or no invitations, 
you know, ideas for people to hire, people not to hire, whatever it might be. And he's just flicking through them and he's going, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. See, because I found that interesting because I remember like, when I was preparing for this, Asda, I saw a, um, a documentary once on David Frost's interviewing technique that oh, yeah. you were on. Yeah. And there was that question that you sort of were paying homage to him that it, it, it was something he said we prepared to the nth degree. And then he said to Tony Blair about, do you pray, you pray with George, with George Bush? And Blair looked flummoxed at how to answer it. And what was fascinating was that what interested me was, where, where was authenticity in that, you know, in his answer rather than just tell the truth rather than you could see him almost trying to second guess how it would play out politically. Yeah. That was, that was, I mean, listen, David Frost was, uh, I miss David Frost so much. He was a very good friend. I think he was a brilliant interviewer, very underestimated because he was nice to everybody, particularly in the sort of last couple of decades. But he could absolutely get you right in the guts. And the thing is, we did pride ourselves on thinking through every question that's ever going to come up. And that just, that was sort of left field, you know. And it was the way he did it as well, David. He said, do you ever pray with George Bush? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what, was he, what was he trying to get out of Tony, do you think? Uh, David loved getting stories. Yeah. He was probably trying to get something that would really make news. Um, but also, I think those questions do, because the thing about, the reason why that was such an interesting moment for me, I can't remember if I said this in the documentary, okay. was because within that little exchange, there's a whole backstory to do with the fact that I always felt that politicians should stay, in the UK, should stay out of religion. Right. I think it's a dangerous territory. I don't think people like it. I mean, American presidents, they're expected to hold the Bible, God bless America. I think Britain's just different. I don't feel that British people really like it. I could be right, could be wrong, but... And we used to argue about that quite a lot. And the one time when Tony sort of went his own way and he wrote a piece for the Telegraph, because Tony is a, you know, he's a big believer mm. and his faith is incredibly important to him. And he wrote a piece for the Sunday Telegraph, it was, what Easter means to me. So I said, all right, okay, okay, on your own head be it. If you want to do it, you do it, fine, okay, off you go. <laughs> he writes the piece, we send it through. And I said, I'm just telling you, by Sunday lunchtime, the news will be leading with the Tories accused Tony Blair of saying that to be a Christian, you have to vote Labour. Well, he said, well, I'm not saying that. I said, no, you're not saying that. That is what they're going to say you are saying. Sure enough, Brian McWinney, Tory party chairman, future president of the Bible Society, or chairman of the Bible Society, <laughs> so big believer himself, and that was the attack. So thereafter, Tony never really went for it. Right. But in a way, it was authentic. He was saying, the answer's no, but I'm worried about where you're coming from with this. Right. That okay. was authentic. Yeah, true. It's a good reminder, though, of the challenge for anyone, whether they're in political life, sporting life, if they're on the big stage remaining authentic is one of the biggest challenges I think for them isn't it and the people that you've met over the years the ones that have remained at the top probably authenticity is what they've managed to keep hold of do you think I don't know why when you said that I thought of Putin again is Putin was the Putin that we saw that the West thought was going to be a different sort of Russian leader was that authentic is the Putin that we see now authentic are they both authentic are they just different stages of the development of the same person I don't know. But I think authenticity as well. I think people sense if somebody's not comfortable in their own skin. Mm. 
you know, I mean, I can't work out why anybody likes Boris Johnson as a Prime Minister, because I mean, I've known him for a long time, and I can't work it out. But a lot of people do. And they sense something real. Now, I sense something real as well, and I really don't like it. Because I think actually, it's the, I think the whole thing's a construct. But maybe they're right, maybe I'm wrong, I just don't know. I just don't know. But I feel that, I feel to be authentic in, I think you've got to be true to yourself and being true to yourself, part of that is being, just being truthful. Yeah. And even if you don't like his politics or what he stands for or the decisions he makes, do you have admiration for the fact that someone can create that world around them and get to the position that he's got to, regardless of how they've done it? I find it very hard to divorce it from how they've done it. Yeah. I find that really hard. You talk about worrying. I mean, we got called liars the whole time. I get called liar every day on social media about Iraq, 45 minutes to dodgy dossier, did every single day. And I know I didn't lie, uh, but that's never going to make any difference to, to the people who say that. But I used to lose sleep about it. Now, we now have a prime minister who does lie, and he lies in parliament. <laughs> Do you think he loses sleep about it? I don't think he does. I don't know. I don't know, but I don't think so. And I think that's a real problem for our politics. I think it's a real problem. Once you play into that narrative, they're all in it for themselves. They're all the same. They're not all the same. They're all very different. And most people in politics are actually quite decent people and quite a lot of them are second rate and quite a lot of them are, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want them to sort of lead your country. And I do think there's a referendum. You know, I think winning a referendum when everybody knows, whether you voted leave or remain, I think we can all accept that they didn't necessarily tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth the whole yeah. of the time. Yet they won, and the guy who led that campaign with a lot of lying, his reward become foreign secretary under Theresa May, and then next step he becomes prime minister. I think that's a pretty bad message to. So this is an interesting skill then that I'm, that I'm interested in without necessarily describing uh, Johnson was. There must have been occasions where you had to master the art of saying no or to respectfully disagree with people without falling out or creating collateral damage. Two questions really are there. How important is that as a skill and how do you successfully say no to people? Well, you can fall out of people, but I think the, I think it goes back to the point about strategy. I think if, you, if you're working within a clear strategic framework, yeah. Most decisions ought to be fairly obvious. The choices can become quite narrow, but whether you want to do option A over option B, or whether this is going to be your main priority or that's going to be main, your main priority, they should be quite straightforward questions based upon the strategy that's agreed. Right. And then the rest becomes the negotiations and the tactics and what have you. The only time I find it really difficult, if I'm being absolutely honest, was when most of the times on the policy stuff I was fine, the only time I find it really difficult is when the personal and the political were colliding. Like when, for example? Things like, so it's like Fiona and I are both absolutely passionate about comprehensive education. Okay. So some of the choices of school right. that some of our people might make, where I'm the person who's going out and to defend it, I find that quite difficult sometimes. And the thing is, again, back to the whole thing about, I would say, not being a liar, not being a very good liar... When I was doing the briefings with the media, they could always work out when, I wasn't, when my heart wasn't in it. The other thing I found difficult sometimes was when people dress up 
what is essentially just a personality difference as some great political principle. Uh, you're seeing that a bit in the football thing at the moment with the Super League. When you read that Super League statement, and it's all about, you know, we're trying to improve the women's game and we're trying to, you know... We know what it's the, about. We yeah. know exactly what it's about. And, and, and that thing of, you know, that sense of... I think the close... Tony Blair always used to say this about any situation. The closer you can get to saying the absolute truth about the situation, the better. Yeah. Now, in politics, just as in life, sometimes, you know, when you've reached a compromised position, you can't always say everything. Yeah. So the question for an external audience is how do you balance that sense of you're saying what's true, but you're not saying everything about what's true. There's certain things you're just not going to talk about. Sure. That's a challenge though, isn't it? Because I've read a brilliant book from, have you read it, Bob Iger's book, the CEO of Disney Corporation? No. Well, he talks about his superpower being that he got to the point where he would only make a decision he absolutely believed in. Totally, wholeheartedly believed it was the right thing. And, you, and then he could be questioned as much as you like because he totally believes it. Sometimes, though, you were probably in a position and people around you were in a position where, as you just described, you couldn't tell everything. You couldn't reveal everything because it, you, were in, you were in a political climate which made it a little bit more challenging, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think business is easier. Yeah. And I think businesses accept that, you know, there's a much linear, you know, the prime minister, the president, they are at the top. The cabinet is the next level. But then within that, there'll be other people in and around. You know, there's no point getting away from it. I remember Tessa Jow once said to me that all these cabinet ministers, you try and get them with Tony the whole time, he's never going to trust them as much as he trusts you and three or four others who are absolutely his team. So that's, you know, and I think working out that is kind of part of the navigation of any organisation. I can remember, again, you talk about Alex Ferguson. I can remember him once saying, you know, if, if things are as bad between Tony and Gordon as everybody's saying, why doesn't he just sack him? And I'd, I'd say, well, because politics isn't the same as football. You know, if you sack a number two or a player, they have to go somewhere else. Yeah. In politics, they, they stay on the pitch. Yeah. So that's another part of the management. You've got to work out what they will do if they're not at the top table. So you've seen people at the top of their game in business, in politics, in sport. Of all the areas that you've sort of investigated over all the years you've done it, who gets the mindset right the most, do you think? Sport. Really? By my. Why is that? I don't know. I mean, back to Dave Brailsford. I can remember Dave Brailsford. The last book I had, I was there, volume eight of my diaries, 2010 to 2015. And Brailsford keeps popping up, right? Partly because I'm doing some work with Team Sky. But every time he just says, why haven't you got rid of Ed Miliband yet? I said, well, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, it is. You know he's not going to win. Everybody knows he's not going to win. Why haven't we done it? And <laughs> now, that is his mindset. Politics doesn't have that mindset. Um, Would it benefit from that mindset? Or is it just not possible to get there because of everything that goes on around because it? The because there's so much yeah. involved in the politics. But I felt that... I remember talking to Wazim Akram, the fast bowler, and I said, this is another question I asked a lot of them, what's the difference between wanting to win and will to win? And he said, everybody wants to win, Will to win is recognising what is needed to be done to put yourself in the best position mm. to win and having the capacity to do it. Now, I think a lot of politics and a lot of business don't have that. Sport, I think the winners in sport do have that. And I think maybe because sport, maybe it's a cultural thing, the rhythm of sport is such that there's, you know, 
a game every week, often two games a week, real churn of personnel, much faster than in business, much faster than in politics. Maybe they've just, they're just more accepting of that, the need for that constant culture of churn and change. But I find, I mean, in a, at a time when I think politics should be producing the best minds, and certainly the most winning mindsets, I would say they're third behind sport, sport and, business. and business. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. can I sort of ask you then about your experience with the Lions in 05 then? Because that was an interesting experience for you, that, you've, that where you, you're going into an environment where it's going badly wrong in a place where mindset's really important. So, yeah. being an insider to that, what was it you saw they got wrong on that occasion? To be fair to Clive Woodward and his, and, and, and his team, I don't think they got much wrong other than they were playing the All Blacks at a time when the All Blacks were just unbelievable. So if you think about OST, objective to win, you know, it's, a, it's the best of three series against one other team. It utterly crazy to go there thinking objective not to get humiliated, yep. objective to win. Clive's strategy, I think he would have defined as best ever preparation for a Lions tour. I think he did that. And then, you know, I guess I was in the tactical expression, really. And I did say to him, to be fair to myself, I said to Clive, right at the word go, when he asked me, I said, look, Clive, I'm up for this, but I think it's a mistake. Why? Because I think there'll be too much focus on me. Uh, I think people will think it's a bit odd but I'm really up for it because just from my own perspective, I'd left in two, number 10 in 2003, went back for the 2005 campaign, didn't want to go back and to have the, I think it was two weeks between the election and leaving. It was May the 25th, I remember it because it was my birthday and it was when Liverpool won the Champions League. But I was up for doing it because, and he said, well, look, you know, every, the press say that the Lions media operation last time was rubbish. I'm confident you can make it good. That'll help them, that'll help us. And actually, I think, to be fair, I think Clive would say that I was able to add something in terms of mindset and, and, I, and I got on really well with some of the players, not all of them. I got on really well with the Irish and the Welsh in particular. Some of the English guys, but, but some of them I think were just, they were like, they were very much in the kind of, what does he know about rugby, yeah. which sort of defeated the point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wasn't there for what I knew about rugby, I was there for what I knew about the media and what I knew about strategy, teamship, leadership, etc. Yeah. And um, so I really, really enjoyed it. Some of the players have stayed, I've stayed very good friends with. I learned a lot from watching that, what the inside of an elite sports organisation looks like and I really enjoyed it. But I wouldn't do it again. If, if the one personal learning I, I took out of that was that I can't do another media communications job. Why? Because it became about me. And it would probably do that if I did it. So I, I'm happy, I've gone, I've done, I do loads of media stuff, right? But I do it very much as always part of a team, don't want to be number one, just kind of hang back a bit. Interesting. But before we move on to our quickfire questions at the mm. end of the pod, I just want to move back briefly to when we discussed your journey with mental health. Yeah. I think it's really important for people listening to this who maybe have had or are having similar experiences. You've also spoken powerfully about the benefits of the problems that you've had with mental health and how you get positives as well as negatives. Would you talk about that for a second for us? 
Well, I think, you know, I know you talk a lot on the podcast about resilience. I think I'm a very resilient person. I think the resilience comes from having been through a lot of mental health stuff, not just my own, but family. And, you know, you get, I get resilience from, I had a brother who had schizophrenia. Um, he's sadly dead now, but I got a lot of resilience from the way he dealt with that and the way I helped him to deal with that. I get resilience from the fact that my, my son Touchwood is still you know, eight years without a drink. So I, I think resilience, I think for me, I think a lot of my creativity comes from the mood swings. Some of the best work I ever do comes when I'm coming out of a depression. And some of the best, you, 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 you'll be lucky I didn't bring my bagpipes, but <laughs> some of the best bagpipe music I've written comes when I'm going into a depression. So creativity, I think, comes from it. And I think also I give myself a yardstick for everything I do and how I feel about what I do and I measure it against the worst times. Yeah. So I can sometimes be very, very depressed, but I'll, even in those depressed moments, I'll say, well, look, this wasn't as bad as... And I've got my dates in mind and I'll say... And then I'll... It just gives me a little bit of a tick to kind of move back into the better side of my depression scale. I think it's an important thing for people to hear, isn't it? Because there will be people listening to this that are in the dark place and they haven't yet Well, listen, a lot of depressions, uh, you know, I think we're finally moving to the place where people accept it's an illness and that you won't have... Was it John Gregory who said to... John Gregory said to one of his players, stand you know, yeah. to stand color, what have you got to be depressed about? You yeah. know, you're playing football, you know, it totally misunderstands that depression has got nothing to do with your background, your wealth. Uh, it's, it's an illness. Some people get it, some people don't. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm sure if you've got a quarter of a million people listening to this, uh, I've been getting the figures on your downloads, then there's no doubt yeah. a lot of them will be struggling. Yeah. And you've obviously in your book mentioned Billy Bean. He talks about, you know, extreme people. Dave Brailsford talks about extreme people. Anyone that you've met who is at the absolute top is an extreme person. Do you think that they're generally happy? Or do you think that with extreme success and creativity, there's a payoff? I think there is a trade-off between, and I, also I think there are successful people who aren't necessarily extreme. I thought it was really interesting the other day, I read that thing about Mick Jagger sent a million quid, his million quid advance back on his autobiography. Did he? Why? He's decided he, he just couldn't face writing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and I thought fair enough, but I also wondered whether that was a, whether that was a, he's not an extreme mindset. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But so I, think, I think it's possible to be successful without being extreme. But I think to be, I think if I look at the list of the people on the front cover, most of them are extreme personalities. And can people get to the objective just by chance and luck? Have you met those people as well? Or pretty much everyone that gets to the top, they use OST, SLT? Oh, no, I think, I think luck's still incredibly important. I think a lot of people still make it to the top on luck. But I think if you're looking at the people who've, Certainly you look at people like Brailsford, Mourinho. I remember, you know, talking to Michael Phelps, the swimmer, and, and I mean, he struck me as a guy who was in pain a lot of the time. Mm. You know, the training was painful. You can yeah. imagine the training he had to do just up and down a bloody swimming pool. <laughs> I mean, I do 20 minutes in the Lido every morning, right? I'm bored rigid by 10. And the next 10 minutes is just, it's a real struggle, right? So if you're doing that, so I, I think the, I think most of them have got a, an extreme mindset and I think they do pay a price. Right, quick fire questions. <clears throat> Go on then. 
the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into? Obsession with winning and understanding that's a good thing. Shouldn't be frowned upon. Absolute openness and honesty with each other. And an understanding that good ideas can come from absolutely anywhere. Mm. And there, there is no hierarchy to them. And some of the best ideas come from people that aren't paid to have good ideas. So what advice would you give a teenage Jalister just starting out on your journey? Don't drink so much. I think I've done better with my life than I thought I would when I was a teenager. Right. By, so what I'd say to any teenager is don't try not to narrow your horizons. And, and, and don't imagine there's anything that you, you couldn't do if you really, really, really set your mind to it. The only thing on, that I've thought of I should have done and could have done which I've never done, is to go into elected politics myself. And there's, there's always been a good sort of tactical reason for that, to do with timing and doing other things and, and what have you. But that's, that's the one bit of my life that I've not done. Um, and I think it's too late, to be honest. And, and, I, and I just don't see a way in at the moment. I, I'll tell you, no, I'll tell you what it is. I didn't work hard enough at university. And I wish I had. Right. Uh, I think I wasted... I think, I think when you're in a position where you can just, you're just there to try and develop your brain, develop it. Yeah. And I didn't, I punished my brain quite a lot. Talking of developing brains, can you give our community one book recommendation? It can't really be one of your own. Can't be one of my own. No, because we know about them already. You've done a very nice plug for one of mine, two of mine actually, Yeah. and I've plugged a couple. This is probably the wrong book. Well, we can all learn from everything, so well, check I'll tell it out Well, I'll tell you the reason I want to say this, is because one of the things I've been doing in lockdown is I did German, French and German at university and I lost my German. And I, uh, I didn't lose it all, but I lost all of it. So during lockdown, I've been relearning my German for these Goethe Institute courses. So I'm only listening to German podcasts, obviously part of yours. I'm only reading German books and I'm watching loads of German films. And I've just read the book, do you remember the German goalkeeper, Robert Enker? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who killed himself. Sad story, yeah. Yeah. So I've just read his biography written by his best friend. And the reason I mention that, as I think a very legitimate book to read in relation to high performance, he was a high performer. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he was still, I think, in that culture where people in sport, and I think German sport is actually pretty amazing for lots and lots of reasons. We're seeing it again in the Super League debate. But I think it was still thought that that John Gregory attitude was kind of prevalent. Yeah. And so I think if somebody wants to read how it is possible to be incredibly high performing, incredibly good at what you do, a really nice person, but still find that life's unbearable and life's intolerable, it's an amazing book. So how important is legacy to you? Oh, I don't think it is because I think, I remember when I quit in 2003, and it was sort of big on the news and what have you. And we got home, Fiona and I got home and our two boys were sitting watching the telly and it'd been on the news all day, Sky, 24 hour news, etc. And so I said, what they all been saying then? And, and Rory, my son, said, oh, the obvious stuff. He said, the only interesting one was Anne Widdicombe. Oh, I said, well, he said, well, she said, if you carry on the way you are on the mental health stuff, that's what you'll be remembered for rather than all this. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, that's all right. So I'd like, to, I'd like to think that I've got a lot still to do in the mental health arena. Yeah. But I think when you talk about legacy in politics, I mean, there's o the only people 
Uh, I mean, Tony Blair's got a big legacy, right? You know, and it's mixed. For some people, it's Iraq. For other people, it's Northern Ireland, minimum wage, etc. But not many, not many people in politics have real legacy. So I don't worry about that. Very good. And finally, for all of our community, our listeners, our viewers, your one golden rule for living a high-performance life? Only one. But my one rule is strategy is God. Strategie ist Gott. Well, vielen Dank for joining us on the podcast. Mein Vergnügen. <laughs> Much appreciated. That's why my German ends. <laughs> what about you? You haven't, got, you haven't got into talking German with Mr. Farker? No, not really, no. Yeah. His English is good enough. Yes, yeah. he's good. Thank you. Well, nice thank you. Meet. Really interesting. Thank you. Damien. Jake. You know what I find really interesting about talking to Alistair Campbell is when you consider the people that he spent time with, whether it's Sir Alex Ferguson, um, the psychologist Steve Peters, maybe Dave Brailsford as well. Um, I sometimes think that we have this belief that if we spend all of our time talking to high achieving individuals and learning, then all our struggles disappear. But I think Alistair is testament to the fact that you will still always have struggles regardless of all the things you know and all the people you meet and, and no matter how good life can be to you. For some of us, there remains a constant challenge, and Alistair is, is you know, an example of someone who's battling against that all the time. Yeah, I think the phrase we've used before, Jake, is that you know, depression, such as what Alistair described, is it's a flaw in our chemistry, not in our character. So it's a medical condition, and I think for those of us that have to battle with the challenges of those mental health uh, issues, like what he described, I think going and being open to new ideas is great and and that's exactly what he's done but it's sometimes I think it all comes down to being kind to yourself being giving yourself time sometimes just to wallow take a little bit of time to reflect and then apply those learnings when we're in a better position to do so and I think also an understanding that perceived so-called normality people who don't struggle with mental health compared to those that do it doesn't mean that those that have mental health struggles are not also people of real worth, real value and, and high achievers. I know that um, a few years ago, Alistair, he wrote a booklet with um, Nigel Jones, the mental health campaigner called Time to Change. And in it, they looked at Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, Charles Darwin, Florence Nightingale and Marie Curie. I mean, if we're talking about five people that have pretty much changed the course of history, right? You can mention those five. All five of them struggled with mental health problems, struggled with, you know, depression. In Churchill's case, you know, he had, he had manic depression, didn't he? Um, you know, some of them had bipolar, all kinds of different mental health problems, yet there was a real value to those people. And I think we always have to remind ourselves of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I really admire Alistair for the bravery of being prepared to come and talk so openly around it, you know, I was reading a book this week by a, a comedian called uh, Rob Beckett, who spoke also about he'd had uh, real mental health challenges. And, and what strikes me whenever I hear that, whether it's Alistair or Rob or anyone else doing it, is just the courage to come and share that, to make themselves vulnerable, to tell people these are the challenges that we've had. Because I think from that vulnerability is is real strength. I think it's strength for them as individuals in sharing it, but strength for other people to be able to understand that we're all having tough times occasionally and it's about thinking about the empathy we show to others, being kind to others, being respectful and, you know, being the sort of person that lifts up rather than constantly disparages or puts down is something really powerful. And I think in in Alistair's case, again, to go back to it, you know, 
he had this image of being an attack dog, didn't he, for Tony Blair for so many years. But the reality was what was going on underneath the surface is something that most of us would never understand. And I, there's a really nice um, bit in Alistair's book, and if you if you want to get it, you can find it anywhere. Uh, it's called Winners. It's brilliant. He talks a bit in his book about the fact that people who suffer with mental health problems carry almost more of a value because he talks about the fact that people who've had depression have had such lows that they can then sort of envisage life through many different outcomes, often the bad outcomes, right? So he talks about when Winston Churchill was was fearful of Nazi Germany and fearful of Hitler and there was kind of this feeling that the other leaders weren't quite so worried about what they were going to do. He sort of, he talks in his book about um, did the depressive instincts that Churchill had make him kind of more realistic about the threat that Germany posed, which I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. You know, people who have had those mental health struggles perhaps are more empathetic to others. Yeah, definitely, because you've you've almost been to the very edge of the precipice. You can see the worst things that we live through and therefore sort of it, it, that phrase we've used before, we talk about pre-mortems, if you can anticipate the worst of a situation and know that you can handle it, everything then get, that mentally you feel robust enough to be able to cope with it. I was talking to a friend of mine recently, a guy called Carl Perry, that uh, two years ago had, um, um, well, he died and he was brought back to life. He had a cardiac arrest and he's just been writing a book about it. And we were talking about, his, so his book is called You Only Live Thrice, but the subtitle is Perspective is a Superpower. And he feels that because he's faced the ultimate, in this case, death. He feels that since then, he's got the ability to handle anything in a really constructive uh, way, which is exactly what he described in the, whether it was Churchill or in Alistair Campbell's case, perspective can be a real superpower. And I also loved OST. Yeah. Objective strategy tactics. Yeah, because again, it comes back to, I know we like repeating some of our phrases, but... You know, that being clear about where you want to get to, but flexible about how you get there is a great example of what Alistair's describing there. Having a really clear objective and a strategy, but then the tactics will always have to be flexible and changing is a really, I, I really like uh, Alistair's acronym to describe it. Wonderful. Thanks a lot, mate. Thanks, Jake. Loved it. One of the highlights of uh, recent episodes has been Damien and myself chatting to listeners of the High Performance Podcast. So if you um, if you want to share your story, if you like what you've heard, if you've got a comment, if you've got a thought, if you've got a question, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, Instagram seems pretty popular. You can find Damien at Liquid Thinker. The podcast is at High Performance. I am at Jake Humphrey. And we had a lovely message from Laura, who got in touch to say she's a professional triathlete. She's a four-times Ironman champion. Um, and she said, I'm sure you get a zillion messages like this, but I've been a listener to the podcast for a long time. Love the John McAvoy chat. Um, John is amazing with how he lives his life, his outlook and his approach. Um, she sent this when she was partway through listening to Mel Robbins for the second time. So let's find out if she finished her second listen because she joins us now to have a quick chat. Laura, nice to have you with us. How's it going? Uh, it's very well. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm a little bit daunted. I've actually listened three times now to the Mel Robbins podcast, twice on the podcast, and then I had it on the YouTube video uh, yesterday, actually, while I was running. So explain why that one resonated with you so much. I was almost like overwhelmed with how many points that resonated with me in the podcast. Um, 
I'll be the first to put my hand up. I'm the British cynic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in America and it is very all, you know, you've got this and good job and, and all of that. And I'm kind of not that sort of person, but just something in it like made me sort of, I, I guess, sit up and yeah, and then had to listen to it again just to see, see if I could pick out more of it. And I think like the second time I listened to it, I think it was in the mess. I actually got quite emotional, which was yeah. funny then listening to sort of, Mel talk about the reactions you get when you you go in the mirror and you do that high five I have to say I've still I'm still failing to do the high five I still find it odd awkward weird I barely look in the mirror so I'm still at that early point of not even having that acceptance but I think even just thinking about it is probably making or thinking about the process of, of what she talks about making me more aware and conscious and I actually I sent the podcast round or that episode round to uh, most of my training group as well. So did you resonate with that line that really stuck in my mind Laura was when she was speaking about the London Marathon and can you imagine if people were on the touchline abusing you and saying the kind of things that we say to ourselves that it's unthinkable like how did that land with you? Yeah I mean there's also that phrase of like you you wouldn't talk to your friends like this so why do you talk to yourself like that but as you said with that race particularly because I so I do long distance triathlon and so by the time you get to the marathon at the end you're sort of five six seven hours into the race and I love that element of absorbing energy from the crowd to get you through it yeah it's funny that we we can be every other person's hype man but we are the first to break ourselves down and criticize ourselves and do the complete opposite but that podcast episode has started you on a journey of being your own hype man, right? Trying. Wonder, why do you think you find it so hard? Have you, have you thought about why maybe you find it so difficult? Yeah, I'm just, I am one of those people I, I will be the first to criticise, to break myself down, to say I'm not good enough kind of thing. And I think that's probably, I think I'm on that. That's, I think, why I've listened to it so many times is I, I, I recognise that Um yeah. And it's just trying to navigate through how I get better at being, recognising the person, I guess it is. Sure. Well, to channel the inner Mel, Laura, I think she'd tell you that like, when you became a triathlete, you didn't run an Ironman at the first time out of asking, did you? You built up to it. And I think you're in the process of building up to even just acknowledging yourself. I think you, you're, on that, you're on that journey, it sounds like. It's brilliant. Um, Laura Siddle, professional athlete, four times Ironman champion, um, competing on the global stage, traveling the world, but still listening to high performance. It's, uh, it's great to have a chat. And thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. Um, it means a lot to us. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks, as always, um, to Damien Hughes for being a, an integral part of the High Performance Podcast. Huge thanks to all of you, of course, for continuing to listen, continuing to share it, continuing to talk about it. What I'd really like to do next week, actually, um, well, I'll tell you now, I'll just reveal it. Next week, we have one of the greatest rugby players to have ever played the game. The All Blacks legend, Dan Carter, is going to be on High Performance. And after the episode, I want to do a, just a quick Q&A session, really, with myself and Damien, just answering any questions you've got about this series or about a High Performance Live or, or anything at all, really. So please just ping us a message. Um, 
um, just hop onto my Instagram at Jake Humphrey, send me a question and we will talk about it on High Performance next week. Um, so feel free to do that right now. Um, and a quick reminder that if you go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, that's our online home. You can get access to loads of stuff. Um, so check it out, thehighperformancepodcast.com. But that's it for this week's episode. Alistair Campbell, thank you so much for being so honest, so brave and sharing so much with us. Thanks as well to Hannah, to Will and to Eve, the High Performance Podcast team. Thank you to Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio for his hard work. But most of all, huge thanks to you. Our infinite purpose on this podcast is to help you live a more high performance life. And I hope today's episode has got you one step closer. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 